This morning's reading is from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1, 2, 6, and 7. And then we continue in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. And Matthew's Gospel. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good to see you. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, I've waited years for that. (laughs) Let's pray that God will speak to us from his word. Father God, thank you for your presence with us. And we pray, Lord, that you'd open your word to us. Send your Holy Spirit to give us understanding and to give us a heart and mind that would want to walk in your ways and come close to you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So week by week, we're working our way through these sayings of Jesus at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which have become known as Beatitudes. Each of them begins, blessed are the. And we've been thinking week by week that in some ways, they're rather like parts of a ladder, the rungs on a ladder. And I have to say that this fourth beatitude is a rung that many people fall off. It's a rung that many people stand on for a short time and then decide they'd rather retreat to the previous one. William Barclay, a theologian and commentator, says this is the most demanding, the most frightening of all the Beatitudes. Now, I don't know that I agree with him, but I certainly think it's very, very searching. I also think, as we will see, I hope, this is a very, very incisive Beatitude, which has the capability to reignite our passion for Jesus and to accelerate the coming of his kingdom for which we pray. So with that in mind, that's the ground that we head down. I'm sure that most of us will be able to think in our mind of someone like this. I'm thinking of someone who's a fellow believer, who in times gone by is a friend that I really enjoyed spending time with and looked up to. I admired their commitment and their faith, and I was inspired whenever we got together by their devotion to God. 
And it was obvious that nothing was too much trouble, that they harbored a deep, deep faith for Jesus. And when I was in their company, then following Christ was an adventure. And whenever we met together, my expectation went up, my faith increased. And it was obvious that Christ permeated every part of their life. He wasn't partitioned into the side of life. And prayer together was always vital, and the conversation, whatever it was about, was always wholesome and encouraging. And then after a gap of some time, maybe, you bump into that person, and it's just obvious that things have changed. You don't know why. And no doubt they still are believers, that's not in question. But rather like silver, a piece of silverware that's lost its polish, the luster has gone and it's more hidden and perfunctory. The sparkle is dimmed. The enthusiasm is muted. And you can't help wondering, how did things come to this? Well, what's true on an individual level, like that, can also be true of church communities as well. And if you doubt that, just uh, remind yourself of the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. Churches that once were a light on a hill that you couldn't miss, now are a lantern that you can't find. And this beatitude, this saying of Jesus, I think, holds a clue for revitalization. And also, we'll consider how to avoid getting into that state of flatlining or staleness, even to start with. So what does this saying of Jesus mean? That's a good place to begin. And the first thing that we'll look at is the words hunger and thirst. What's going on here? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we need to know that the nature of this hunger and the nature of this thirst is probably something that none of us have experienced. But Jesus' listeners would have done because the majority of them quite literally lived on the breadline. And hunger pangs would have been part of their life. And a desperate kind of thirst would have been a common experience. This is the kind of hunger that drives you to extremes. The kind of hunger that has you eating dirt, even though it will do you no good at all just to keep the pangs away. The kind of thirst that could drive you crazy. It's a craving. And at the heart of this beatitude, at the heart of this saying, we're meant to take note of this attitude. A blessing awaits those who are this focused, this intentional, this single-minded, this extreme. They'll be rewarded. Now, even at this point, this early point of the sermon, I was thinking there'll be some people who in their heart of hearts, even now, at this point in the sermon, are saying, no, not really. That all sounds so extreme. Everything in moderation, no more than moderation. Jesus is teaching us here that nothing less than total commitment 
and searching with diligence is going to be rewarded satisfactorily. It really is calling for extreme focus. I've often had time to reflect and pause to reflect that why is it that we understand this in nearly every other walk of life, but we make an exception when it comes to God? We understand that no successful athlete just dawdles their way into success. They commit huge amounts of time, effort, energy, discipline. No successful businessman, no successful parent, no successful anything just arrives there. It it takes great focus. And with God, it's no different, and we'd be disappointed if it was any different. So with that in mind, what is the object of this hunger and thirst and drivenness? And we're told it's righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what, what does this mean? And there are three possible meanings, and they're probably all, well, I know they're all correct, but probably the emphasis is on the middle one, but probably being a theologically educated lot, you're thinking immediately of righteousness meaning friendship with God. Blessed are those who know who God is and they enjoy his friendship, and you're not wrong. They are indeed blessed. They are indeed happy. And definitely Jesus has that one covered in this beatitude. And it's an absolutely wonderful thing, isn't it, when you meet someone who is hungry to discover the reality of God, whoever that might be. And God has put it in their hearts, and most likely this is an experience that many of us have had, where we're not quite sure we understand this Christianity thing, but we've got friends who are Christians, and now we want to see for ourselves, is there any truth in this? What will happen? Who is this Jesus guy? Christians, I've met a few of them, and they actually seem quite authentic and compelling. I'm prepared to give some time to look into it. And Jesus says, if that's what's driving you, if, if, if you have a hunger and a thirst and an intentionality about that, you will be, you will be satisfied. And it's marvellous to know that in Scripture, in more than one place, in at least three places, and there are probably more, There are explicit promises that when you search for God with all your heart, you will find him. There is a correlation to the diligence of your search and the success rate of finding him. Deuteronomy chapter 4, for example. But if you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Jeremiah chapter 29. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And Jesus, just a little bit later on in the Sermon of the Mount, go on seeking and you will find. And that's why it's, it's a thrill for us all, isn't it, that the Alpha course is starting this week. And you know, once again, we push the boat out and we reach out and we invite our friends, not just any old friend willy-nilly, but the ones that you can see God has already put a hunger and a thirst and an interest in. And they come and, and it's a delight to be part of a group like that. And it's even more wonderful and when God ignites what's going on. And now, I'm not spending very long on this point because, frankly, a church like ours, happily, uh, knows all about this. It's at the very heart and centre of what we exist for, to help people to come to Christ. So that is certainly one of the meanings of this beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the friendship of God. 
They'll find it. They will be satisfied. But there's a second thing that runs parallel with this. Blessed are those who have a hunger and a thirst for walking in God's ways. For what are called in the scriptures, paths of righteousness. You know, once you've surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in you, something very, very big has happened. You're beginning to change now and you're beginning to seek after what God wants. And your heart suddenly values things that in the past you never thought twice about. And your heart suddenly wants to walk away from things that in the past you cherished. And what this beatitude is saying is, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for God to reveal the path of life for them. And I guess this is put nowhere more simply and nowhere more accessibly than in Psalm 23, the psalm everyone loves. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. So far, so good. And what does he do next? He guides me in the paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. And that's what this beatitude's about. And the fruitful disciple of Christ really, really, really hungers for this and thirsts for this. And it's not a new concept. It's in the Old Testament as well as the new. So Jeremiah can say, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. But sadly, he says, but you say, we won't walk in it. Or Proverbs 4, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. Now, if this is the path you and I want to go down, the good news is you're heading in the right direction. The good news is this is God's Holy Spirit stirring in your heart to even put such an idea there that you should want to pursue it. But alongside that good news comes a dreadful realisation and a great challenge that this is a difficult path to walk down. That it, it's much, much easier to go the way of a crowd. That if we're going to pursue this together successfully, it, well, all kinds of opposition is going to come our way. So I, I think it's, it's worth just taking stock for a second and considering so what could blunt this kind of hunger and thirst negatively? What could lead us off track? And I, I think one of the answers is incredibly simple. And, and it's that we all like shortcuts. We, we all prefer um, an easy route. And there's quite a quick parallel with um, eating nourishing food and eating junk food. You know, junk food takes a second to prepare and it doesn't do you much good, apparently. <laughs> and yet we reach for it. And that even Isaiah, back in the day he was writing, he was puzzled by this and he challenged the people. We had it read just a little bit earlier. Come, all of you are thirsty, come to the waters. You've got no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what's not bread and your labour and what doesn't satisfy. And 
here's the thing that is so annoying. The things that rob us of satisfaction, the things that take us off the path of life, are horribly pedestrian. You know, if the things that took us off a path of life were dramatic, if it was a man standing in front of you with a gun to your head, in some senses you'd be in less danger because you'd see it coming and it's like red lights would flash and you'd say, hey, I'm not being tricked that way, thanks very much. But according to Jesus' teaching and according to life's experience, it's not that that so often derails us. It's unbelievably pedestrian things. And I'm just reaching for the parable of a sower here to illustrate it. So Jesus says, the pleasures of the world, the desires for other things, and worrying. Those very three basic things, they'll do the trick. And actually, if you look around you and... um, you're brutally honest and you look at the things that are blunting your own hunger and thirst for righteousness, your friends, what's derailing them, it will be those things, nine times out of ten. The pleasures of this world, the desires for other things and worrying. So let's just think just for a nanosecond or two, the pleasures of this life, the subtlety about that is there's nothing wrong with them on their own but they blunt or have a potential to blunt our thirst for God's ways. Now, I'm not a killjoy, believe me, but if and when your prime ambition and what you hunger for, let's say, is a lower golf handicap or to increase your art collection or your popularity or your notoriety or your fame, I'm afraid you're walking off peace. Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a lower golf handicap because they'll be satisfied. You won't be satisfied. (laughs) Even if you play off scratch or lower, you won't be satisfied. That's not where satisfaction is. Or the deceitfulness of wealth, says Jesus. And he's pretty blunt about that one elsewhere, isn't he? You can't serve both God and mammon. Or, and this is a more surprising one, worrying. I think many is the person, and who hasn't been in this space, who said to ourselves, I'll be happy when... And then you fill in the gaps. I'll be happy when I've got married. I'll be happy when my children are in well-paid jobs. I'll be happy when I own a house like this. I'll be happy when I've cleared the overdraft. I'll be happy when I've got this, that, and the other. And the answer to all of that is wrong. You won't. You won't. You'll only be happy. I'll only be happy when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what this beatitude is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. That is the source of your happiness and blessing. Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be given to you as well. So, reality check, quick test. If you want, you put yourself through this test, but if you want more honesty, ask someone who knows you better because they will tell you, really, as opposed to what you wish. What do you talk about most? What do you invest in most? What do you give most of your time to? Well, the answer to those questions will give you the pointer to what you worship and what you hunger after. I have extraordinarily bad eyesight. 
So I spent quite a lot of my life, it seems to me, in, in an optician's. And their job is to check my eyesight. One of the things that they do is they check out your primary focus and how focused you can get. This beatitude is a plumb line for our focus. How much, how much are we hungering and thirsting after God's ways? And how do we get back on track? And how do we stay on track? Well, I've already said that it it, um, calls for total commitment and, and it won't be done without effort. Love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and all your strength. That sounds pretty much like total commitment to me. And then it's fairly straightforward, really. You ask yourself about everything. Are the things that I'm doing, the books that I'm reading, the TV I'm watching, how I'm spending my time, everything, is it going to lead me closer to God and increase my thirst for him? Or is it going to lead me away from God and diminish my hunger and thirst for him? And then you'd make a good choice. It's sort of like as straightforward as that, if only we stop to do it, but we very, very, very rarely do stop to do it. And you ask the Holy Spirit to show you, why is it that I've become so lacklustre? Why is it that I, I don't light up the world, but I really can hardly find a light at all? And here's a seriously frustrating thing. Trying to follow God faithfully and growing spiritually is not like eating chocolate. You know, you can stop eating chocolate for a month and the moment someone puts a bit of chocolate in front of you, you know how to eat it and your appetite for chocolate resumes, unless you don't like chocolate, but in which case this example is bombed. But for most of us, you understand what I'm talking about. But the salutary thing is, walking with God is not like that. You can't just drop him for a month and then pick up where you left off. Because the longer you leave your connection with God to atrophy, the harder it's going to be to actually want to find him again. And it's seriously alarming how how quickly this kind of diminishment happens. So it it just takes a few days of not reading the scriptures and your desire to read scriptures plummets further and further and further away. It just takes a few days of not setting aside time to pray and your appetite for prayer has diminished. In this way, kind of how our spiritual life grows is a bit like developing your muscles. The more you use them, the better they are and the more equipped you are. But the less you use them, it's almost to a point where they're not there to use. And and I have noticed that when I reflect back on who are the people that have most impacted me by their spiritual life, and as I was thinking about it, one's an accountant, one's an insurance broker, and one's a retired clergy person, Every single one of them, they had this in common. They put God first. There was no question about it. They prioritised their walk with God. And if I was going to summarise this sermon, I would say this is the main point. Put first in your life the thirst of your life. Align the two. And just check it out with the way you're doing life. Check out the first fruits of your day. It's just such a straightforward test. What is the first thing in your day that you do? Your first priority would be to seek God. And that's best done through the scriptures and prayer. Now, I know, because you know, 
we all know probably, this is not a trade secret. You've heard this from hundreds of Christians. You won't meet a Christian who, who tells you anything different. But it doesn't mean that you're doing it. But not to do it, not to seek the Lord in our scripture, through the scriptures and through prayer, just means you're not going to see this hunger and thirst satisfied. And I'm not beating you up because I beat myself up over this and I'm so disappointed by Rupert's standard. You know, the last two weeks, I'm just sharing this, last two weeks as I sat down to have my quiet time on my iPad, I have had a little battle at the beginning of every single day thinking, I wonder what the test score is. And, and it, it's been a tremendous battle whether I would open up the Times and find out what went on in Australia or open up the scriptures and find out what went on in Deuteronomy. A tiny little silly example, but very, very real. How do you spend the first part of your day? How do you spend the first part of your pay? Do you give God from the top of, top of a sack, as um, you could picture it? Do you give God what's right or what's left? These are just indicators of whether we're hungering and thirsting for God and his righteousness. How much do you put a priority on spending time with God's people? Anyone who wants to grow in their walk with God, anyone who's seriously hungry to grow in God's ways, knows that they have to be in the company of fellow believers. It's not, it's not a, a secret known only to a few. And it's constant down the whole a whole of history. Small groups are key part of what we need to keep our faith nourished and on the ball. And by the way, when we're talking about fellowship, that's not just really talking about a friendship group. It, it's talking about an accountability group. It's talking about people who will speak truth into your life and sharpen you up in walking with God. And one of the things that I think is a subtle undermining of our ability to make spiritual progress over the last couple of years is an impact that lockdown has had of driving us away from one another physically. Now, of course, I'm glad there are some people who are able to watch online who couldn't possibly make it to church today, probably because you're living in the Bahamas or something. So, you know, it's quite difficult to skip over just for the afternoon. And there are some people who can't make it for all sorts of other good reasons. But if the only reason you're staying at home is to be somewhere nearer to the hot chocolate, get here. Because you're missing out on fellowship. You're missing out on company that will build you up. And we're missing out by not having your wisdom and your character and you here with us. This is how God has built his church to be interdependent on one another and we have a key part to play in raising one another's hunger and thirst after God don't we it's something we can do now I stopped and reflected on this sermon as I was writing it and thinking Rupert are you putting slightly too much emphasis on human effort and are you rather underplaying the role of the Holy Spirit and the answer to that is no I'm not. They belong together. That's why Paul can say things like, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's why Paul can say things like he's striving towards that which God has asked him to do 
forgetting what is behind and straining towards what's ahead, I press on. I think it was a very canny pastor who, when he was asked to pray for a young person who came forward at the end of a service, and a person said, please pray that tomorrow and every day following, I can get out of bed at six o'clock and have a quiet time. And the pastor said, well, this is what I'll do. I will pray that you set your alarm and you get the first leg out. And then I promise you, with the help of the Holy Spirit, the second leg will follow. <laughs> and it is a bit like that. You know, it's, it's, it's pointless us just saying, oh God, you know, help, help, help. If you, if you just intend to roll over when the alarm clock goes and stay in bed. It, it's both and, the Holy Spirit and our cooperation. Now, much more quickly and, and finally, the third way of looking at this saying of Jesus is the overspill of not just that we've come to Christ and are friends with God, not just that now we seek the ways of holiness ourselves, but also that people who are walking life like this, it's inevitable you start to develop a yearning, a longing that the world all around us would represent God's goodness and holiness and majesty and love and kindness. You know, a righteous world would be a world at peace, a world of justice. And there's obviously an overlap between how we live life individually and the coming of God's kingdom, more broadly speaking. And because I can't improve upon it, I'm going to read to you from a tablet that you can find in the crypt of Westminster Abbey, and it, 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 it says it very clearly. When I was young and free and my imagination had no limits, I dreamt of changing the world. As I grew older and wiser, I discovered that the world wouldn't change, and so I shortened my sights somewhat and decided to change only my country. But it too seemed immovable. And as I grew into my twilight years, in one last desperate attempt, I settled for changing only my family and those closest to me, but alas, they would have none of it. And now as I lie on my deathbed, I suddenly realise if I'd only changed myself first, and then by example, I would have changed my family, and from their inspiration and encouragement, I would then have been able to better my country, and who knows, I may even have changed the world. Friends, we need to be doing this together. And if you long to live in a more God-honouring society, and why wouldn't you? And if you long to see the kingdom of God come, and why shouldn't we? If you long that we pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then the spiritual temperature of this church has got to go up. And that depends on you and me individually. We're not playing at pleasing God. We're living to please God. And why this beatitude is so searching and why it is so challenging and why it is so alarming is this. Because you can be as holy as you choose to be. You can be as righteous as you want to be. And so can I. So do we? Do we want to be righteous? We want, I think, a Holy Spirit surge. We don't want to get stale or get left behind. And as I conclude this sermon, I think it's a challenge to all of us, but I'm 
absolutely sure if we're learning anything from the Beatitudes. God is faithful and God is true to his word. And God will honour us if we hunger and thirst after this righteousness. And it's an open invitation. This is right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's open to all who will hear it and want to buy into it. But I'm absolutely sure that the spiritual temperature of St. Michael's Jesus Square will go up as we go after this. And if you want a quiet life and a comfortable life and a predictable life, walk away now because that's not what's promised. And anyone, anyone can be at the very heart and centre of God's revolution like this. Anyone. It's just, come to the waters. Come and buy. Come and eat. Why, Why invest in stuff that will let you down? But if you do walk away or if you just kind of turn up once every few months, you'll get left behind. And I don't want anyone to be left behind. When we have meetings like the one we have on Tuesday and God's people come together to praise him, they come together to diligently search after him, they come together to pray together. Well, you could be part of that. I can be part of that. But don't blame me if you miss out on that and you come back in a few months and you say, this isn't the St. Michael's I recognise. Well, it won't be because the river of life flows and where God flows has changed. But if you want your passion for God to increase, come to the very heart of what's going on. Hunger and thirst after him and you will be satisfied. There is not a person in heaven or on earth who has invested their life like this, who has found that God has let them down. But it is a challenge. It's time the camouflage came off and the fluorescent jackets went on. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus starts his sermon with blessing after blessing after blessing. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to want to walk in your ways. Thank you that you're faithful. Thank you that you don't condemn, but you set free. Thank you that you set out before us a path of life and say, choose life. And we say, yes, Lord, we would want to embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen.